Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders as we bring to you the October 2021 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Chris Jones is a well-known authority on the life of James Maybrook and is the author of The Maybrook A to Z, as well as the organizer of the trial of James Maybrook in 2007. He's given talks about the Maybrooks at numerous Ripper conferences, as well as in front of the Whitechapel Society, where we now hear him again back in the Crutched Friar in the East End of London for a talk entitled Motive, Means, and Opportunity. Did Florence Maybrook Commit Murder? Isn't it great to be back here in the Crutched Friars? So welcome everybody to the October meeting of the Whitechapel Society. So it's been a long time and it's great to be back here. Also, for all those of you on Zoom, um, a very big welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Also, for those of you that are listening in through the excellent Rippercast podcast, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this evening. And if you want to find out more about us, come to our website, which is whitechapelsociety.com. Tonight's topic is motive means and opportunity the case against Florence Maybrick which ties in perfectly with our theme this month um, Chris is an ex-history teacher and deputy headmaster he took early retirement to set up a small outdoor walking company in Snowdonia and it was while he was uh, playing rugby in Liverpool he discovered that James Maybrick was a member of said club back in the 1880s which meant he started researching him and that led to a book that he wrote called Maybrick the A to Z He's currently working on a new definitive account of Florence's trial and James's links to Jack the Ripper, and his aim is to provide an objective, balanced, and complete account of the story with the mass of new material and evidence, and we look forward to hearing about that. Ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Jones. Okay. Uh, this is a picture which was featured in a Liverpool newspaper, The Porcupine, on the 15th of June, 1889, about a month after the death of James, and the artist, Oliver Silk, tried to get a really accurate picture of the two people at that time. And he said, and I'll, I'll, and I'll take his word for it, that he showed the picture to family and friends, and they were happy with the way it looked. So what you've got here are the two people that I'm going to be talking about tonight. James, the husband, he was aged 50 from Liverpool. We'll talk about him a bit more in a moment. And this is his wife, Florence, who was in her mid-20s. So there was a big age difference between the two of them. She was to become convicted of his murder. Till this day, she is the only American woman ever to be found guilty of murder in this country. She was sentenced to be hanged. She spent 50, but the, the sentence was commuted for reasons I'll explain a little bit later. She spent 15 years in prison, but was never, ever pardoned. She went back to America, and she died in obscurity in 1941. It became a really, really famous case, and it was one of the cases that led to the establishment of the Court of Appeal in this country. So prior to, when this case took place, once you were found guilty, that was it. There was no court of appeal. But because of the outrage about the verdict, th there was a big sea change in the law in this country. So it's quite an important case in terms of uh, the law, let alone these two individuals. 
couple of little things I want to say. Some of you will um, know this story inside out. Some of you will know this story a little bit. Some of you probably won't know the story at all. So it's difficult to pitch it, really. So I'm going to assume that most of you know very little. That's not to patronise anybody, but it's just that it, it sometimes... If I assume people know things and they don't know things, then they get a bit lost straight away. I'm also going to say to you is for those of you who do know it, be careful because you're going to say, well, hang on, I know what happened, I know what happened. But in reality, we got, we got, I want to explain. I don't think Florence was uh, guilty, but I want to try and explain why people at that time delivered a guilty verdict. So you've got to, to do that, you've got to go back to May, June, July, 1889, not the months that followed. I'm also going to say to some of you to be careful about holding deep-seated prejudicial views, especially about James, because a hundred years later, as I'm sure you're all aware, a diary suddenly emerged in which he allegedly confessed to being Jack the Ripper. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm going to say very, very little about that. I'm going to say one thing a bit later on, but I'm going to say very little, other than to say, be careful, because that colours many people's views of him. They're already saying, well, he couldn't have been a very nice man. In actual fact, he was a very popular man. He had a lot of friends, and even Florence's counsel, Sir Charles Russell, described him as a very generous man, a very friendly man. So we do need to be careful a little bit about holding views that we might have that might colour our objective analysis of the case. And a final little thing, I'm gonna, and I'm going to come back to this later on, was it even a murder? I'll, I'll leave that for the moment, I'll explain that later on. A little bit about the two of them. I haven't got a huge amount of time tonight, so I'm going to be fairly brief about both of them. James was born in 1838 in Liverpool. He was a, a full, proper Liverpudlian. His father and his grandfather and his predecessors all were born and lived in the city. His father and his grandfather were the parish clerks of St. Peter's Church. In its day, that was the pro-cathedral of Liverpool because Liverpool at that time didn't have a cathedral. So by being a parish clerk, it was actually a position of responsibility. Quite a big responsibility. And while it was a part-time role in his grandfather's day, it became a full-time role in his father's day. So they were a well-known, well-connected family. There was, he had five brothers, well he actually had seven, two of them died when they were very, very young, so there were five who lived to become adults. One of them was a called Michael Maybrick, I'm going to come back to him a little bit later on, but he was in his day the most famous singer in Britain. He was a, we call him today a big celebrity. And I think, well I'm sure in fact, that his role in the background and sometimes in the foreground shaped and coloured the way the police investigated it. The people were much more deferential in those days towards figures of high status. So when Michael Maybrick comes to, on the scene, the police listened. James became a cotton broker, set up his own company, and he spent half the year in, in Britain 
half the year in America. When he was in America in the 1870s, around about 1877, he caught malaria. One of the treatments for malaria, well, he started off with quinine, that didn't work, was arsenic. So he started to take arsenic. Um, and it, becomes, it became, if you like, a very dangerous, obviously clearly a dangerous drug to take. And he became a habitual user of the drug. That's an important factor when we come later on to look at the, the actual trial and the verdict. Here you can see Florence. Florence was born in Mobile, Alabama. There's some confusion over the exact date that she was born. In her autobiography, she, she quotes the year 1862. And you think, well, she, she should know, shouldn't she? But on her official passport form, when she went back to America, she put 1861. So in the book, sometimes you'll see 1861, sometimes you'll see 1862. Our latest research shows pretty conclusively that she was born in 1861. Her father was a, a rich banker in Mobile, but 1861 was at the start of the American Civil War. They actually owned slaves as well. Um, one of those things, not a, a nice thing to say, but they did. And, but it gives you an idea of their wealth as well. Her mother, is, you'll often see her referred to as the Baroness, but because she'd be married, that, that was her third marriage. Her first husband, Florence's father, dies in 1862. A year later, she marries uh, an officer, a Confederate officer, and then he dies a year later. And of course, some people put two and two together, and they, they say, well, the mother could have been killing these two first husbands. Well, once again, we've done a lot of research in that, and we can conclusively say, that's not the case. They both died of natural causes. In fact, I've seen the medical certificate of the second um, husband who died of consumption. Then she came over to Europe and she married a German uh, military officer, Baron von Rock. So she assumed the title Baroness. Although um, the marriage didn't last very long, but she lived in Paris. As a result, Florence had a brother, uh, Albrook, and the mother, they lived in Paris. They would crisscross across the Atlantic. On one of those voyages, they bumped into James. He, as you can see there, was aged 42. She was aged 17 or 18, depending on what year you're going to pick for her birth. Massive difference in age. But... A romance started. Now, there are a lot of people who are very cynical about this. Because of her title and because of her, some land that she was supposed to own from her mother's father, she was seen as a very potentially rich woman. Now, in fact, none of that money was ever really to, to be realised. But the arguments, or some people suggest that James was looking around for a younger woman and he was looking around for a, a young, rich woman. And along comes uh, Florence. She was looking away to get from her mother 
who was, had a very turbulent life. So maybe it was a marriage of convenience. I'm not so sure. I think, yes, there was a pragmatic element to both of them, but I also think there must have been a degree of affection as well because they both make a huge change in their life. They get married in 1881 in St. James's Church in Piccadilly. And if you've never been there, by the way, it's a beautiful church to visit. Really stunning church. In 1888, we're not sure the exact date, probably around about February in 1888, they moved to this house in Liverpool. They don't own this house, they rent this house. This house was given the name Battlecrease. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen it. Some of you may have even been there. I know for a fact that some people online have been there. Um, I'm going to assume, again, that most of you will know very little about it. So I'm going to sort of give you a little snapshot view. This house is divided into two parts. There's, the other part is it's symmetrical, so it, it looks exactly like the, 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 the half that you can see. This is the half that the Maybricks lived in. You're looking at it from what the road, Riversdale Road. Now, that, when the Maybricks lived there, was the side of the house. So this picture doesn't really give you a true reflection of the grandeur of the place. If, if I show you there, I hope you can see that online there, those people who are zooming in. That was the original entrance to the house on the side there. And down in front of that entrance, there was five or six acres of land. There was a big, long drive going to the house. The house had stables. The house had orchards. Now, they've all gone. There, where where the, the, the old entrance used to be, now there's just a driveway and a wall. So you don't get the real picture of, of the house. The house is owned today by a guy called Paul Dodd. He owns both parts of the house. He lives in the other half, although we did actually live in the half where the Maybricks lived in. He now rents these three floors, so there's three tenants. This ground floor was where they had a big ballroom there. This was the first floor where the bedrooms are. I'm going to come back to that floor in a minute. That's where uh, supposedly the murder took place and lots of arsenic and so on was found. And up the top floor was a real upstairs and downstairs. That's where the servants lived. So it was a really, really grand residence. In May 1889, James suddenly dies. Big shock. And then, dies on the 11th of May, just four days later, on the 15th, this is one of the Liverpool newspapers, suspected murder. It's already out there. Certain suspicious, suspicious circumstances. So, almost immediately after James dies, the finger of suspicion points directly at Florence, his wife. I'm just going to go through some of the, the core details again fairly quickly for the benefit of those people who aren't fully up to date with the whole story. James, as we said, he appear, appears apparently, apparently, 
a very healthy man. Now, in reality, I don't think he was a very healthy man, but many people believe that he was. A month before he died in April, he saw a doctor, a Dr. Fuller, who actually gave a, a, quite a detailed investigation of him and said that all he was suffering from was severe indigestion. So for most people, he appeared fairly healthy. After he dies, a post-mortem takes place and traces of arsenic are found in his body. So you're beginning to see what's happening here now. An apparently healthy man suddenly drops dead. Hang on a minute, there's arsenic in his body. Shortly before he dies, Florence and James have a very, very public row. It takes place at the Grand National. Florence is seen walking hand in hand with another man, comes back in the house, the servants hear them shouting at one another. The next day, Florence is seen with a black eye. Not a very pleasant, not a, not a very nice experience. But once again, you can see there's tension in the marriage. Also at the same time as this happens, Florence has bought two sets of flypapers. Now flypapers are exactly what they, they, they sound like, papers that kill flies. And they did that because within them there was arsenic. There was about two grains of arsenic in every sheet of paper. So there's James, suddenly healthy, suddenly drops dead, arsenic in his body, and at the same time as he starts to become ill, Florence has bought these flypapers. She's seen soaking the flypapers to extract arsenic, which, which she did, to be honest. There's a reason for it. On top of that, the servants in the house, there was five servants, start to say, oh, hang on a minute, this food's not tasting quite right. There's something wrong with the food. It's not tasting the way the cook prepared it. James himself complained about the taste of the food on at least two particular occasions. As he's Ill, when he's ill, Florence is seen moving medicine, shaking a bottle from one bottle to another bottle. Now that's probably, an, well I think it was, an entirely innocent act. But you can see in the context maybe of this web of suspicion that's beginning to build up, it was seen rather differently by some people. And there's one absolutely pivotal thing that happens during this time. Three days before James is di dies, Florence gets one of these bottles. I hope you can see that, those people who are watching on Zoom. This is a bottle of Valentine's meat juice. Now, this isn't the actual bottle, <laughs> although it's possible that the actual bottle is in uh, the, the black... Um, museum in Scotland Yard, although I know Lindsay's going to say she doesn't think it is. It doesn't really matter whether it is or whether it isn't. This is what the bottle, and if you can see, it's not really very big. Florence was seen adding a powder into this, and she even admitted adding a powder into this. When it was tested, it was found to contain half a grain of arsenic. So, once again, the suspicion was... What was the powder? Arsenic. Who put it in? Florence. James has got arsenic in his dead body. It seems all everything circumstantially is beginning to point at her. A letter that she wrote to her lover was also intercepted. 
I'll come back to that in a minute. When they tested some of Florence's clothes, a dressing gown, an apron, and a handkerchief that was in one of the pockets of the dressing gown, there was arsenic on it. So it's beginning to look, if you like, pretty desperate for her. The there, is a, there is a body of circumstantial evidence. Now, if you've read the article, I've, you'll probably already know that I don't think she did it. But what I'm trying to say, like I did in the first point, is trying to explain why people at the time, or many people at the time, did believe that she did it because of this body of circumstantial evidence. Little look at the two people from the police force who came to investigate. One of them, just like a little bit like, if those of you know a little bit about the Ripper crime, this area was policed by two separate police forces, the city police and the metropolitan police. It's the same in Liverpool. Liverpool. There was the Liverpool police, but then there was the Lancashire Constabulary. Where they lived in Egbert, it's only five miles from the city centre, but at that time, it was policed not by the Liverpool police, it was policed by the Lancashire Constabulary. The guy who did the routine day-to-day -day inquiries into this crime, there he is there, Inspector Baxendale. He was a farm labourer background. He made his reputation in the police force by catching sheep stealers. This wasn't a man who had a great experience of complicated toxicological murders. I'm, I'm not saying that he, 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 I'm not saying he was crooked in any way, or I'm just saying that in terms of his experience and his background, it was lacking in many respects. His boss, there he is. Superintendent Brynin, he was a sort of similar sort of person. He also had a background in agricultural crime. Um, he was a farmer's son who moved to Liverpool in the early 1880s, where one of his main tasks was checking the weights in shops to ensure that shopkeepers were selling the goods at the right weight that they said they were selling it at. So these were two people who were suddenly catapulted into this high-profile murder case and they weren't really, in truth, the best two people suited for that role. The evidence in this case, much of it wasn't even collected by them, it was collected by the family and given to the police. And we also know that at the inquest, the police pointed out Florence and her lover Brealey to one of the key witnesses who didn't know, wouldn't be able to recognise them. So, there's quite a lot about the police inquiry that leaves an awful lot to be wanted. It wasn't the best. When we look at a crime, any crime, we need to look at these three things. Motive, means and opportunity. Does the person have a clear reason for wanting the other person dead? If they do, do they have the means to carry out the crime? Do they have access to arsenic or any other poisonous drugs? Do they have access to guns or knives, whatever the crime is? You have to have the vehicle to commit the murder if that's what you want to do. And also you have to have the opportunity, a chance to be able to put in practice, 
the ideas that you've got in your head. When we look at these things at Florence, those three seem to be in place. Now, word of caution here, I'm not saying that she did it, but I'm just saying, as I said before, I'm trying to explain why some people initially saw her as the number one prime suspect. Let's deal with motive. Florence seemed to have a motive because her and her husband were clearly going through a rocky patch. There was a big difference in age. James's use of drugs, he was a heavy user of both arsenic and strychnine, was having a marked effect on his physical health. He was also a man who had a woman in the background himself. A woman in London with, with whom he had five children, although none of them have been registered, and I'm almost certain with the research that we've done that they died either at birth or very, very soon after birth. He certainly didn't marry her, but she was there, and he was paying her money. But Florence, that wasn't known so much. That was kept quiet, if you like. One of the big mistakes that Florence made at the trial was not highlighting that because it would, it, she had enough evidence at her disposal to arrange a, divo a divorce. She didn't need to murder James. However, at the time, it, was the one, it looked like it was Florence who had the motive. She was having an affair, although it's likely, and I think it's the case anyway, that she'd only spent two nights with the man. There he is. You can see him there, Alfred Brealey. Two nights in a hotel in London. One of the key pieces of evidence that was, that was taken... <laughs> be another murder soon. <laughs> the, uh, one of the key pieces of evidence that was uh, presented at the, the trial was the letter that you can see there. It's got an R, that's from the mother, the Baroness Rock, okay? But it's a letter that Florence wrote in pencil to Alfred Brealey. And you won't be able to read all of it, but you can probably see the first word, dearest. That didn't go down very well. Although Florence later said, and her mother said this as well, that because it had been in pencil, it had been changed. She'd originally written, dear A, and somebody changed it to dearest. I don't know whether it did or that did or didn't happen. We can't prove that one way or the other. But what we can say is that this letter was a pretty damning piece of evidence against her. It seemed to supply her with a motive. Um, also within the letter were certain unfortunate phrases. One of them, which you can see, just about possibly, it says, he is sick unto death. Now at that time when she wrote it, James was ill, but he didn't look as though he was about to die. So the fact that she wrote sick unto death seemed to imply or was interpreted as meaning that she, that she knew he was about to die. And how could she know that? Because she was poisoning him. So it was a pretty powerful piece of evidence. Did she have the means? <laughs> there was enough arsenic in Battle Crease to have killed in excess of 50 people. 
the house was awash with arsenic. The most infamous piece was the fly papers, which I've already mentioned, which Florence definitely bought. Now, they are the biggest red herring in this whole saga. Florence bought them because she used them to make a cosmetic solution. Now, that is now beyond doubt. And unfortunately for Florence, the prescription that she had to make this wasn't seen until a year after the trial. What was made even worse for Florence was that in 1884, two women in Liverpool, two sisters, Mrs Higgins and Mrs Flanagan, were hanged in Kirkdale prison for killing four people with arsenic extracted from flypapers. So when people saw the flypapers, they instantly and immediately put, well, hang on a minute, danger. It was a red flag sign, but it wasn't a red flag, it was a red herring because she didn't use it to extract the arsenic to kill James, she used it to make a cosmetic solution. And how can I be so clear about that? If you do extract arsenic, there's fibres that come with it. And no fibres were found in any of the bottles or within James himself. So, the flypapers were the headline act, but although they were the headline act, they weren't the real issue to kill James. But within the house, you can see there from the, uh, the Liverpool Echo, there's a huge list of other items that arsenic was found. And I'm going to come back onto some of those a little bit later. Did she have the opportunity? Yes. She had the opportunity because she was looking after him when he was ill. She could provide him with medicine. She didn't make the food, but she often would take the food to him. She clearly had the opportunity. She also had the opportunity with the Valentine meat juice, remember, where she definitely put something in there, some powder. Another exhibit for you. James also took to work some food that was prepared by the cook. We put in this, but Florence packaged it. Now, once again, this isn't the exact one, but it's the, ex it's the same exact bottle of what it looked like. When this was tested by the county analyst, they found, and if you can just see, there's a sort of like a little rim. Underneath the rim, although they had been cleaned, they hadn't been thoroughly cleaned, there were little traces of food. And once again, in those traces of food, they found traces of arsenic. If we look here now at this plan, this is a plan of the, up the first floor, the bedroom area. Now this is crucial to understanding what happened. This is the Maybrick's bedroom, but James and his wife didn't often sleep together, especially in the last year of their married life. James sometimes slept, it's marked on here as a dressing room, but it wasn't used as a dressing room. It's, it was used as, better known as an inner bedroom. 
and you can see there's a bed there, a separate bed there. So during much of their married life, Florence would be sleeping there, James in the little room off it, the inner bedroom. There's a spare bedroom next door. And if you come into the house today, those stairs aren't there. This is actually now the first floor. There's, there is a tenant in there now. The Maybrick bedroom is now his lounge. Um, the spare bedroom is his actual bedroom. And the dressing room is now where he keeps his guitars. Uh, he's, a nice, he's a nice guy, very friendly guy. But it, it's still the layout that he would recognize. Now, I want to go into this in a little bit more detail because there were two huge finds of arsenic. They were found not by the police originally, they were found by the family and the servants and given to the police. Now that, of course, today would nullify some of that evidence completely in a modern trial, but that's the way it was done. The most important find was in this linen cupboard. In the linen cupboard, there was a trunk. The trunk had Florence initials on it. Although its most recent use had been used for when the children had gone away on a holiday. After the, the James had died, two of the servants take the trunk from the linen cupboard and they move it to the night nursery. Okay. Just a word on the linen cupboard though. The linen cupboard is on top of the stairs. It's a highly visible place. It's a place that everybody had access to. Two of the servants, uh, Elizabeth Brealey and Mary Cadwaller, went in there virtually every single day. Florence's trunk was used to store towels that were used in the inner bedroom. So the servants went into the trunk quite frequently. Now, if you are going to commit murder, are you really going to hide arsenic in a place that everybody goes into in a trunk where the servants go into very often as well? It doesn't make much sense. There was a big find of arsenic in Florence's trunk. It looked bad because it was in Florence's trunk. But I don't think it's anything to do with Florence at all. I don't. Why would she possibly put arsenic in her own trunk if she was deliberately trying to murder? Everything about the trunk was unlocked. The linen cupboard was unlocked. The other big find was in the corner of the room here, which is the hat boxes. James's hat boxes. So why again would Florence put arsenic in? James's hat boxes, which he actually used, and he was still using up to the 3rd of May. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Interestingly, the one place that was locked was Florence wa Florence's wardrobe, which is there. And guess what? No arsenic at all was found in that wardrobe. In fact, in all the things that only Florence had the keys to, no arsenic was found. Now, if she was deliberately going to commit murder, she'd hide the arsenic. She would do it secretly. She would have hidden it in places that she controlled that nobody else went into.
Who put the arsenic in James's hat boxes? Well, possibly James. He was an arsenic user. Who put the arsenic in the trunk? Now, that's a big question mark. I think it was planted there by James's brothers, not because they murdered him, I don't think they did that, but because they were convinced that Florence had done and they wanted the police to think the same thing as well. They wanted to solidify the case. Either way, I don't think any of that arsenic belonged to Florence. And we do know that in January, James met a guy called Valentine Blake. Now, Sue has written an excellent article, which is in this uh, month's magazine, about this character. He was a slippery character. Don't deny that for a, a fact. But he, he said he met James in January, and in February he gave James 150 grams of arsenic. And guess what they found in Battle Crease? Approximately 150 grams of arsenic. He gave James arsenic, some of it which was pure arsenic, white arsenic, some of it which was mixed with charcoal. And guess what they found in Battle Crease? Arsenic, some of it which was pure, some of it which was mixed with charcoal. So, yes, there was a vast store of arsenic, but it was nothing to do with Florence, in my opinion. It was all to do with James. But either way, I don't even think arsenic was the thing that killed him. We'll come to that a little bit later. The inquest took place. There's a picture of it. It's, it, it's in a room in Garston, not far from Egbeth. You can still go to the place today and go to where they had the inquest. On, the, on the, the jury were two people who had actually been mourners at James's funeral. Some of the other members of the jury knew James and were his friends. The chairman of the jury, there he is there, the, the one on, on the, below, Fletcher Rogers, was another cotton broker who knew James. He was a former president of the Liverpool Cotton Brokers Association. He'd actually been on an appeals committee that James was on. He knew James very well. And ironically, after the, the Maybricks vacated Battle Crease, he moved his family in. All a bit odd, that really, but there you are. Above, above him is the coroner, who was a lawyer, newly in post. He spent the first day of the inquest looking at the circumstantial evidence rather than trying to ascertain exactly what killed James. He got it all the wrong way around. It was completely stacked against Florence. To make it even more stacked, Fletcher Rogers was not the original chairman. The original chairman was a guy called Dalgleish. After they had a preliminary meeting in a... In a uh, in the Egbeth uh, Hotel, where they had the, the, the initial inquest, it only lasted a couple of hours, Doug Leash went over to Battle Crease and he looked at James and said, I know him. That's James Maybrick. I met him on a train a couple of months ago. He, would, he told me he took strychnine. Now, they then decided to remove Doug Leash, not only as being chairman, but took him off the jury completely, 
but this was a guy, even if he wasn't going to be on the jury, he was in a pivotal position because he'd spoken to the deceased man, literally, weeks before he died. And the deceased man said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm taking strychnine, which is a highly poisonous substance, which you're all aware of. That didn't come up. He was not at any point in the whole of this process, either at the inquest or the trial, asked to give any evidence. He was airbrushed out. What he said could have been pivotal. It goes to trial, St. George's Hall in Liverpool, and you can go and stand there today. It doesn't even cost anything. You can go into that room. It was still used as a court right up into the 70s in Liverpool. It's, it's, it's now part of the, the beautiful St. George's Hall building. You can go there and you can go into the holding cells below and you can actually walk up a spiral staircase into the dock and stand where Florence stood. It's a very small place. The trial lasted seven days. It was a huge international affair. A young American woman accused of murdering her husband, a Liverpool cotton broker. It attracted worldwide attention. It was a huge story in America. It's hard for us, maybe, to understand today, especially if some of you have never even heard of it. But it was probably the biggest, most important trial of that period of 20 years at the end of the late Victorian period. I'm going to go through just some of the evidence quickly. The case for the prosecution, led by Mr. Addison, was that James, although he was a hypochondriac, which he clearly was, was basically a strong guy, healthy guy. And he'd been slowly poisoned by his wife with arsenic because she had a motive, because she had another man. They called the two chemists who sold Florence the flypapers. Now, these were her local chemists. She was known there. She had the flypapers delivered to the house. When they arrived at the house, James actually picked up one of the packets. Said, oh, flypapers. When she extracted the, the arsenic, she did it on public display in her bedroom by the, a washstand. Everybody could see it. There was no secret, hidden, clever plan. Dr. Carter said, he was one of the two main doctors involved, he said that there'd been two poisonings. Now, I'm going to come back to both of these, because these dates are important. The first one took place on the 27th of April. On that day, James was going off to the Wirral races. He was quite a keen horseman. He became seriously ill. He recovered. And then round about the 3rd, the 4th of May, he had a second illness which lasted about a week, and he died. So according to Carter, therefore, there'd been a succession of arsenic delivered to him, but certainly on two key dates, the 27th of April and round about the 3rd of May, two big hits of arsenic. And the top guy from the Home Office, the senior analyst... Stevenson, he was a big guy, this high, very high-profile guy. He comes along and he says, I have no doubt this man died from arsenic. In the post-mortem and in the subsequent analysis done by a guy called Mr. Davis and by Mr. Stevenson, 
the most arsenic they could find in James, the most arsenic, was in his liver, and there was one-third of a grain. Now, it would take at least two grains of arsenic to kill an average person. But for somebody like James, who was a regular and habitual user of arsenic, it would have taken at least three grains. All they found was a third of a grain. So in other words, they simply didn't find enough in his body, in his case, to have even hurt him. It would have probably hurt you and me, but someone like him who was used to it, it wouldn't have done any damage at all. And way below what was required to kill him. They tried to get overcome that problem by saying, oh, well, it must have been eliminated from his body when he went to the toilet and so on. Well, they did test some of his urine and his feces, and guess what? They found no arsenic. They tested his bedclothes and his, the bed sheets. Now, if arsenic was coming out of the pores of his body, they would have found it, but they didn't. It was a big hole. So, although there are suspicious circumstances and circumstantial evidence, all of a sudden there's now a massive hole in the prosecution case. Case for the defense was, did James die from arsenic? And if he did, who actually put the arsenic there? They had a chemist from Liverpool who testified that James would visit his shop two to five times a day for a, what was called a pick-me-up. A pick-me-up involved having some arsenic in it. They also had some other witnesses who came from America who testified that James took arsenic. Now, one of the problems with these were that they talked about things that happened in the 70s and the early 80s. They didn't really have enough about to prove that he was still using arsenic. That's, that's how they, 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 their evidence was weakened as a result. But nevertheless, they could show that James was a, an, what they called an arsenic eater. There's the day, the 27th of April. This is the day where, I mentioned to you before, Dr. Carter said he got the first heavy dose of arsenic. On that day, James took a double dose of medicine called the London medicine because it came in the post from London. But was it arsenic? No, it was strychnine. And how do we know it was strychnine? Because James actually told one of the servants in the house and he told one of his friends, Morton Rigg, at the Wirral races, I have just taken a double dose of strychnine. Morton Rigg wasn't called, unfortunately. Should have been there. The man they did call, William Thompson, said that James took a double dose, but he didn't use the phrase strychnine. The prosecution argued that James, on the 27th, took arsenic. James himself actually said he took strychnine, and he took a double dose of it. And to make matters even worse, he was seriously ill. The next day, the 28th, guess what? He took another big dose of it. He was also using Nux Vomica, which contains strychnine. So he's now had, five, in, in the course of two days, five massive hits of strychnine. And guess what? He became ill. 
as I say, if the flypapers are the red herring, all this store of arsenic in many ways is taking people down the wrong. Strychnine was what made him ill. And who gave him the strychnine? He gave it to himself. James Belletti was, was uh, uh, a guy in Liverpool who worked with women and cosmetics and hairdressing and perfumery and so on. He testified that it was quite common for women to use arsenic as a basis of a cosmetic solution. Unfortunately, he'd never actually given any arsenic as a prescription for Florence. That would have helped. But nevertheless, he said that what she said about buying the fly papers was true. And one of the doctors, there was several doctors came along. One of the doctors said, when we look at James, and I'm going to quote from him here, vomiting, uh, he said, he told the court that there were four key symptoms of arsenical poisoning. Vomiting, excessive and persistent purging, pain in the stomach, the eyes were swollen. And he went on to say that these symptoms were either absent, absent, or were not typical in the case of James. So, even, and I know there's still one or two people I know still think Florence was guilty. I personally don't. But even those people who think that Florence was guilty say there is sufficient doubt there that there's no way she should have been found guilty. But she was. And the judge, there was two main reasons why. Okay, there's a, there's a couple of other reasons. There was the letter, which I've referred to before, seemed to provide motive. There was the hysteria over the flypapers. There were some criticisms of the, of the jury. They only took 35 minutes to make a decision. Very, very complex case. How could they possibly do it in 35 minutes? They probably didn't give it enough care and consideration. But they, these are the two big factors in my, I, my belief. One of them was Florence made a statement to the court. It was a big, big, big mistake, big on goal. In the statement, she admitted putting a powder in the meat juice. And that powder, or the, the meat juice, if it was the right bottle, and I, I haven't got enough time to deal with the, the bottle bit today, unfortunately, um, but either way, when it was tested, it had half a grain of arsenic in. So the, the, the jury later on when they were interviewed said they, to them that was a huge thing. She'd actually put arsenic in. Now, in actual fact, if you put powder in this, it won't dissolve. It doesn't work. And none of the doctors and the chemists who tried it. So there's another big mystery there. Um, but either way, in, in, as far as I'm talking about today, her statement to the court was hugely damaging. And then the judge set about finding her guilty. On the second day, summed up for two days, he said things which were wrong, completely wrong. He got dates mixed up. Uh, he got basic facts mixed up. He had already determined in his mind that she was guilty. Her barrister, Sir Charles Russell, who later became the Chief Justice of England, the top legal guy in, I say England because Scotland, they've got to be England and Wales because Scotland have got a different system, as you're aware. 
He called it not trial by jury, but trial by judge. In a, in a quite a powerful statement from such a man that the judge had pushed the jury in a particular direction. Um, just to give you, I'm going to give you just one simple example. In April, James Maybrick said to Sir James Poole, who was a former Lord Mayor of Liverpool, I take poisonous medicines, I take them. The judge said that Sir James Poole said that in January. He got the date completely wrong, and there's, there's a massive implication for that, because if it was in January, the arsenic, if he, could have, if he had it taken, would have gone out of his system. In April, if he took arsenic in April, it would still be in his system, and if he died, it would appear in a post-mortem. Why was there arsenic in James? James put it there. Florence spent 15 years in prison. Um, I haven't got time to go through all that today, but she spent 15 years in prison, and then she was finally released. As I say, she was never pardoned. She went back to America, where at first she was a massive celebrity. She gave tours, huge publicity, very, very, very famous woman. Began to run out of steam, then began to run out of money. She spent the last 20 years of her life living, you can just see it there, in that little shack in Connecticut. No running water, little fire. It was for, for a woman, she's lost everything. When she was arrested, she never saw, she had two children. Once again, I didn't have enough time to go through all that, sorry. sorry. But two children, she never saw them again. Never saw them again. Her possessions were auctioned off. Her life just spiralled into a terrible mess. She suffered terribly. And the last 20 years, that's how she lived. She was looked after by a local school, children from the local school and some of the local community who, who took sort of pity on her. And she's buried, uh, and that's, that's, that's a younger looking me there, <laughs> with a sad haircut, He's going to, one of my nephews is going to tell me. Um, is, uh, that's, that's her grave. You'll see in some of the books a sort of more classic cross grave. That's gone. That, that, that's, that's, been, that's now been removed. That's what her grave looks like today. So, what, hap what happened? Okay. I don't think Florence died of arsenic. There's the huge list of arsenic that was found in the house. As I said to you before, to me it doesn't make any sense that she would have hidden arsenic in places that were so publicly open and publicly accessible. It just doesn't make any sense. The fly papers, which the prosecution kept hitting them with again and again, could not possibly have been used, and we know that for a fact, because of the lack of fibres. We know James was an arsenic addict. One of the weaknesses of the defence case at the trial was that they used people who talked about his use in the past. They could have used people who were right bang up to date, including, I've mentioned before, Morton Rigg on the 27th, who said he used strychnine. Sir James Poole, April, I take poisonous medicines. Doug Leash, also in April, said I use strychnine. 
Valentine Blake didn't appear at the trial. Um, he could have testified that he gave James a lot of arsenic. His own brother, Edwin, told Captain Irvin on the 1st of May, Irvin, who was a long-standing friend of James, looked at him, said he looked a bit ropey. Says, what's wrong with your brother? James, Edwin's words were, he's killing himself with the damned strychnine. This is his brother's verdict. Now, he didn't say that at the trial. I don't think there are one or two people, Bruce Robinson, will say things, oh, the, 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 the Maybricks brothers were, were behind the murder. I don't think there was a murder. I don't think they were behind it. But I do think they were 100% behind a cover-up. And I do think they moved some of the evidence. In fact, I can, we know they moved some of the evidence because some of Florence's letters went missing. Edwin wrote some letters to, to, to Florence, which were a bit compromising. They disappeared. Okay, so finally, what happened? Okay, now we're in the realms of speculation. Not everybody will agree with this. This is what I think. I don't think he died of arsenic. Although he was taking arsenic. This was a man who'd been taking dangerous drugs over a long period of time and his whole physical constitution was going down rapidly. He was much weakened. He was not a healthy man, as the prosecution made. He was a man who was past his best. On the 27th and the 28th, he takes two massive hits of strychnine. By the way, the police, the coroner, the analyst, the top man in the home, they never tested for strychnine. That's, that's a huge disgrace. Tested for arsenic, they never tested for strychnine. But he took it, even admitted taking it. He becomes seriously... Now remember, I said he got better. Oh, a bit better. Not a lot better, but he got a bit better. He went to work a couple of days. On the third, he wasn't well again. He's taking arsenic still, we know that. On the fourth... He goes back to the strychnine that's made him seriously ill. And stupidly, he has another big hit of it. And he's now incredibly ill. And what does Florence do? She gets the bottle and pours it away. Now, if she was a woman who was 100% murder on her mind, she wouldn't pour the bottle away. She'd say, oh, go on, have another bit. Have another little go. No, I, you know, finish it off. You might as well finish it off now. She doesn't. She pours it away. When he's had the first big hit, sorry, on the 28th, when he's had the second big hit, she gives him an emetic to make him sick, to get rid of it. There's a man who's seriously ill. Onto the scene come the doctors. In 13 days, this is what the doctors prescribe for him. Now, they actually prescribe more than this, this, this is, but this is taken from the, uh, you can see from the Liverpool Mercury, Liverpool paper from, from August, but, more, but you can see those are a huge long list of severely dangerous and toxic poisons that they're giving to him as medicines. Now, I've got to be a little bit careful that the, what the doctors did was wrong, but the James never told them the truth. James denied he was taking all these things. Within this list, there are three dangerous metallic substances. Um, 
Fowler's solution contains arsenic. Plumber's pills contains antimony. Bismuth is another one. They're all dangerous metallic substances. They get, that's what James has been given routinely now by his doctors. He's taken some other things, Petuana wine, which is highly dangerous if taken with strychnine, which he was doing. Now, to be fair to the doctor, the doctor didn't know he was taking strychnine. So we can blame the doctors, but ultimately we have to blame James. So this is what I think happened. Arsenic, no. Florence, no. We've got a man who wasn't well, who poisons himself severely on the 27th, severely on the 28th. The doctors try to help, make things worse. He has another big hit on the 4th, makes himself seriously ill to the point of death. Coupled with this highly dangerous, highly toxic cocktail of drugs, you've got a man who wasn't well, pushed over the edge. Did Florence murder James? No, she didn't. Who killed James? James killed himself. There wasn't even a murder. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks a lot, Chris. That was terrific. Really well argued. I'm just going to throw the question over here. So if you have a question, if you have a question on Zoom, by the way, can you please uh, put it in the chat box and we will pick that up. So first question coming up. Uh, first of all, thank you for a lovely speech. It was very well presented, as Tony said. My question is about, um, is it, do you get a high then from taking that drug? Is that why he wanted it from arsenic? And oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That's a very good question. Um, originally, he took arsenic because of... As I say, he got malaria. He then says, and he says it on quite a few occasions to different people, it helps strengthen him. So it, was, it makes him stronger. I sometimes say it's a cross between cocaine and Viagra. Now, so yeah. So, it, it, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. But before, you, before all of you were tempted to try it yourself, it's not a good idea. Because it, uh, you, know, you have to take more and more of it. It has some pretty dangerous and nasty side effects. Uh, and it probably made him, in reality, weakened. Yeah, yeah, it did kill him, yeah, yeah. But that's the reason. He, 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 he became totally dependent upon it. Like any drug addict, whether you're an alcoholic or a, you know, dependent on heroin or whatever, you, you crave the drug. You need the drug. So you feel that he was in that situation, really? I, I do, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as I say, I, I, I rushed through that list but I could give you 20 people who say we've seen him take all these drugs, including some of his best friends. Great, thank you for that. Um, are there any other questions on the floor? Great, one more, go ahead. I'm just wondering what are the symptoms of strychnine poisoning and what are the symptoms right, of arsenic then. poisoning? Are they similar? Can they get uh, no, they're not, they're, not, they're not similar. The strychnine one is actually a very good question, and I, I should have mentioned that myself, actually, is that on, on, the, on the Wirral races, on the 27th of April, when he, he first becomes ill, he goes off to the Wirral races, and he's, he's, he goes to the office first, and he tells his uh, two clerks that he's taken strychnine, which they say at the inquest, but they don't say at the trial. Um, when he's at the races, he's having huge difficulty riding his horse. 
Later in the evening, he goes to a guy called Richard Hobson, who was quite a well-to-do guy who lived on the Wirral. And he was twitching. And it causes those sort of spasms. So the symptoms that he had on the 27th are entirely consistent with somebody who's had a strychnine poisoning. Um, that's why, it, it, it's, to me, it's, it's even more... I should have mentioned that, so I'm glad you've asked that question. Thank you for that. It's even more apparent that if we look at what he said and we look at the symptoms that he had, it all matches up with strychnine. You know, the, 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 it, it's because it affects the spinal cord. You mentioned that the jury was pretty much made up of his friends and acquaintances. Do you, so do you feel that she, that old Victorian thing where the woman didn't know her place and so they, they, get, they got together and, and, and put her in her place, really? Okay, okay. I'd have to... There was two juries. There was the jury at the inquest and then there was the jury at the trial. At the inquest, um, many of the people, not all of them, but many of them were his acquaintances, and as I say, two of them actually went to his um, funeral. So, yes, they, were, they, they was, would have been sympathetic to him, but it's also the case that at the inquest, the defence didn't counter any of the arguments. Um, they decided to hold back. Now, once again, I think that was a mistake, um, because it sort of got, gave momentum to the case. Um, so... It was all a one-sided presentation. So even if one of us had been on the jury at the inquest, on the basis of what we heard, we would probably have said, oh, guilty. In actual fact, one of the people at the inquest voted not guilty. Now, we don't know who, but I, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm guessing, that this is somebody who actually knew James and knew the real James and knew what was going on. At the trial, it was a completely different jury. They were drawn from Lancashire, not from Liverpool, and they were what we would mostly call skilled artisans. So there was a few plumbers and painters and whatever. And um, it was Florence's argument, um, although it's a little bit condescending in some respect, that these people weren't, didn't have the intellectual capability to, to, to fully weigh up all the medical evidence. I don't personally buy into that. As far as it being a woman, there's no doubt at the start, you're quite right, uh, it counted against it. And there's a wonderful book by Kate Calhoun who talks about the, if you like, the sort of the gender element of the case uh, and how, you know, Florence was pushed into a corner. And it's certainly the case that the judge was very much um, what we'd say sexist today in, 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 in his, his view about her. But it's also the case that when Florence first arrived at the trial, people booed her. But as they heard more and more of the evidence, because remember, many of these people haven't heard the evidence because they hadn't presented it at either the trial or the magistrate's, uh, magisterial inquiry, suddenly as new facts suddenly appeared about James, she, there was a sort of sea change. So that when she arrived on the last day, rather than being booed, she was being cheered. And most people expected her to be found not guilty. In fact, some of the women had got flowers ready and they asked the clerk of the court, could they present the flowers to Florence because they fully expected it. And it's also the case that both the leading barrister for both the defence and the prosecution both also accepted a not guilty. Either because they believed she wasn't guilty or because they believed there was a sufficient evidence would have cast doubt. Um, so yes, th th there's no doubt about it that th the gender aspect of it is important. Um, 
but in the, and it, in the end, it's mostly important in the way it shapes the views and the speech of the judge. But she, she was seen, as I say, at the end of the trial, it was seen as a gross miscarriage of justice. And as I say, ultimately, it was one of the cases that led to the establishment of the Court of Appeal in this country, because people say, hang on a minute, this is all wrong. Great, thanks for that great question. I've got a question online that I want to actually uh, come to you. There's there's been some superb feedback online, by the way, Chris. A lot of people have really enjoyed your talk. Um, Thank you. And um, Trevor has said, most compelling argument, well put forward. I think I've been convinced. Florence is innocent, well done. Um, Sarah has asked a question, very enjoyable talk. Out of interest, did Dr. Stevenson report testing for strychnine and other substances? No. No, there we go. Simple answer to a straight question. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant question, uh, even though we, it, my answer seems to not imply that, <laughs> but it is a brilliant question because it is, there are huge question marks asked about the way this was conducted by the police and by the prosecuting authorities. Yep. As I say, even at the inquest, um, they were looking at the circumstantial evidence rather than trying to establish whether, how this person actually died in the first case. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Okay, well... Do, do you want another question? You've, you've had three. You've had three. Yeah, go on. I, I, go on. If yeah. I'm allowed to... Go, yeah, go ahead. If, if I'm allowed to what go back to... What do you think the, about the diary? <laughs> <laughs> I'm only going to say one thing. If I can go back onto this... Can I show the picture of battle, the Battle Creek house again? Is that possible? Yep. And I will just say one thing about the diary because it's a bit unfair on Florence to talk about the diary because it's, it's, I know uh, this is a special edition about Florence, so I, I wouldn't want to... Uh, I don't think... if, if, if it, I don't believe the diary is the real diary. I think it's a modern forgery. Uh, I, and if, if I wrote, an article, I wrote a, a, an article for the magazine a couple of months ago in which I gave some of the reasons. And what we're, we're working on now uh, with a couple of other people um, is, is the definitive story of James and Florence and also what we think of the diary as well. I'll just say one thing about the diary, though. One of the arguments for the people who believe the diary could be true is that it was removed by electricians in, in March 1992. I'm just going to show you something on the diagram which shows why that might be a load of rubbish. The linen closet in the modern flat has gone. They knocked that out. If, if you look at the linen closet, by the way, you can see it's roughly the size of a double bed. So you walked into it. It was a big, big area. Um, that is now gone. The electrical work that took place in March 1992, they put in four, it was, it was four heaters, two of them were moved and two new ones were put in because this side of the house was actually very cold. There's the fuse box. They did the wiring, they took the floorboards up in a straight line, there, and there was a, a new heaters put in there there's a new one in the dressing room. And then they went in. There's the hat boxes. That's where they went into. The only bit that they took up, nothing at all was done in that bedroom, James's bedroom. And the only bit that was done in the dressing room was that one tiny bit there where they put a new heater on the wall there. People who tell you that James had stashed a diary under the floor of his bedroom and it was got, got up on May, March 1992, it cannot be right because they didn't even go into the bedroom. 
just not true. And, and, and I've been there, believe me, I've been there many times, and I've got the diagrams from Paul Dodd. Now, Paul Dodd had done some electrical work himself previous to that, and he'd, he'd actually got the floorboards up. But nothing was stashed there. And the other thing to say about them is these are... It's a beautiful, the floorboards are beautiful, by the way. They're old, the original floorboards. Great big, thick floorboards put down with brass nails. They're not the sort of thing you, you can easily get up. And if you do get them up, you have to have all the tools, and it makes an awful lot of noise. So somehow, the, the, the last entry of the diary is dated the 3rd of May, as some of you know. 3rd of May, James was seriously ill. People in and out of his bedroom. The people who propose this hypothesis ask you to believe that this seriously ill man pulled up huge, heavy, wooden floorboards with brass nails which would have snapped without anybody in the house knowing and put them all back in place. One of the suggestions is that he already had a secret little hole. Well, he had a secret little hole. People would have seen it. He couldn't have fixed it back again. He would have found the diary. What he did have is he had a private room downstairs on the ground floor, which only he had the key. If Florence wasn't allowed in there. If there had been a diary, that's where it would have been. It wouldn't have been there. And even if it had been there, the electricians could not, full stop, have got it on the march I've got to, I'm not going to say anything more about the diary, because that would be unfair, because on, on, I've been told specifically not to do that. But, so all I'll say is, no. So I, but I can't answer any more on the diary. I, I did say I wouldn't. Good answer. I mean, there's one more question online, and we can just maybe um, kind of, we'll, we'll come to a close. Um, there was a question um, from Matilda online, just asking when was she released and why was she released? Was she released because she'd served a time, a full term, or did she, was she released early? Okay, that's, that's, that's another good question, yeah. Um, the, the, if you were a man, you normally did, you were sentenced for life in prison, you normally did 20 years, um, and before you were even considered. If you were a woman, it was a little bit different. You would expect you to do at least 10 years, um, but it could be 20 and it could be 15. So she... There was quite a few appeals, as some of you will know, and, uh, and a lot of evidence was put forward at different occasions to try and get her out of jail early, but the Home Office were having none of it. They always stuck to the line that Florence was found guilty in a trial with a proper judge and a proper jury and all the proper processes, therefore she was guilty in law. And they never deviated from that. So the earliest that she could have been released would have been... 10 years. They could have done it, they could have released her after 20 years. So, if you like, they sort of followed a norm to release her after 15 years. They didn't give her anything special or different to probably what some other, if she'd been an, an, another a woman, maybe of less standing or less celebrity, she probably would have served this, roughly the same term. Um, but yeah, it, it's, but. <laughs> 15 years they decided would be what they were doing. But as I say, it is important, because you, you get this, that she was released and sort of forgiven and pardoned. Not true. 
In law today, Florence is still a guilty woman. Great. Okay. Okay. Yep, we have one question at the back, and then we'll, we'll, we'll call a halt. Hold on. That's going to get myself down. There you go. Um, there are a couple of the guys from the society. Um, they seem to think that they found a uh, code in, within the paperwork from the, the book. Yeah. I have trouble with my words, I had a stroke, so I have trouble with the words, yeah? Yeah, but they found that within the um, diary. Were, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, you mean, is this the book by Carl Davis? Is it? I Probably. Yeah, there is, a, there is a book out on, it, 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 the, there's a guy called Carl Davis who I've met and uh, been around his house and I've, read it, I've got his book. And he's, he believes that within some of the Ripper letters and in the diary there is... Uh, a code worked around the name Maybrick. Um, I have to be careful what I say because I quite like Carl, <laughs> but I, I don't quite like his ideas. <laughs> Without, I, I, I think that if it's quite a complicated thing, and actually, about two years ago, three years ago, he, he, him, he was there when David Cantor actually gave a talk about it, and some of you would have heard it, and I thought it was an interesting, thought provoking but it doesn't convince me. Yeah, 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 it was, yeah, I was at that. It's some interesting uh, ideas, but, but I, it, mean, I don't find it compelling. Some light on, on who actually was the actual murderer then, I would have thought. Well, was, uh, as I said, you, I don't think there was, I, 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 I don't think there was a murder as far as, I think James killed himself. Oh. Didn't mean to kill himself. Be pretty upset about it. But it aided and betted by some doctors uh, who gave him that. If you look at that list of drugs again, it's just, it, 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 it's, and also some of you may have seen, there's a, there's a program on TV called Murder Mystery in My Family when they, they did review the case and they had, some of, they had some of the top barristers and they all looked at it and they all said, definitely not guilty. They brought in some expert toxicologists and they were stunned when they saw the list of medicines that James was given. Um, it, it, it's surprising he lasted as long as he did. Okay, we've got one question online. I've got one question from Mark Galloway, and then um, we really will wound up. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, thank you. Just out of interest, why didn't all this information that came out at the inquest come out of the trial as well? So what, what information? At, at the inquest, what happened was the, the prosecution presented the, their case, or the police, if you like, presented their case. The defence decided to um, hold back. They believed that it was going to go to trial, and they, they were also, at the time, they were still, they, they, they'd sent people across to America. They, they, she was represented by the Cleaver brothers, and they'd sent people over to America to track down some of the people who, 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 were, um, who could come across, and, and two of them did, to testify about his drug use. Um, so they, they're keeping their powder dry. They thought, well, what's the point? It's going to go to trial anyway. They weren't, they weren't prepared for it. Another thing, of course, is, is that there's a phrase that the Sir Charles Russell, a, a barrister, uses. He calls her the friendless lady. And she was. She, she was in a dreadful position uh, after James died. She literally was on her own. Um, she became a prisoner in her own house. And, in fact, when the police, the police charged her, or they cautioned her, three days... James died on the 11th. On the 14th, she was cautioned. She hadn't even been spoken to by a police officer or formally interviewed. After one week, she was charged, and she still hadn't been interviewed. 
they rushed her out the house so her mother wouldn't cause any fuss. They locked her mother in an upstairs room and they took her out. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a, a catalogue of, I was going to say errors, but these aren't errors. They, 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 disgraceful things that happened to, to her. Um, I, as I said to you before, it, it, we've got to be a little bit careful because there was things in the police's head that did point in her way, but they never objectively weighed up all the evidence. Uh, and then when they did later on, they change some of the ways that the, the things they said. So as I said to you, for instance, that because they suddenly realised there wasn't enough arsenic in his body, they had to say, oh, well, the arsenic must have been eliminated. But all the tests had failed to show any arsenic. So it, 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 it was, she had a very difficult time. Okay, um, just a couple of questions online and then we're going to wrap up. Um, one question from Trevor is, is there any evidence, what, where is the evidence that Judge Stephen was biased? Okay, well, I'll tell you what, if, if he wants to see the evidence, then in, in the, the National Archives, um, there, there are four boxes relating to the Florence Maybrick trial. In one of them is a 30-page um, submission made by Sir Charles Russell, in which I quoted from a little bit when he said it was trial by judge. He goes in some depth through all the mistakes that the judge made. Now, this isn't a man who, who, who was, you know, a, we're not talking about sort of a fly-by-night lawyer here. We're talking about the top man who became England and Wales' premier legal mind. He's got a 30-page submission. You can, you can access it by going to it, or you can actually order it. They'll probably charge you a postage. Um, it's, it's well worth reading. It's a catalogue of errors, mistakes, things he said. So, for instance, one of the examples is, where the arsenic is concerned, he says the arsenic was in places where Florence was continually. Well, that's because everybody in the house was. It wasn't just Florence, but he doesn't say that. You know, in the linen cupboard, arsenic was found. Two of the servants went there every day. Florence didn't go into the linen cupboard every day. But that's the way he phrased it, the way he pushed it. Basically, he tried her for morality rather than murder. Any woman who was bad enough to commit adultery was bad enough to commit murder in his mind. And I would I really recommend popping over. It's, it's, I tell you what, it, the National Archives, what a fantastic place that is. People are so helpful. You can just go in. And if you go into the boxes, which I've done on a couple of occasions, you, you, it's all there. There's a letter from Queen Victoria just there and all these things in, in there. It's a wonderful resource. No charge. You can go in and have a look at it. And I'd recommend Trevor have a look at what Sir Charles Russell wrote. He, it really sways his opinion if he's in doubt. Thanks a lot, Chris. That's been fantastic. What a great, great talk. And if you want to measure a great talk by the number of questions, you've hit the jackpot tonight. Great questions and really well answered. Great audience. Thank you very much. <laughs> Everybody, Chris Jones. And that was Chris Jones from the October 2021 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. We would like to thank Chris Jones, Steve Ratty, Tony Power, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible.
For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 200 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper in Victorian crime, society, and history. If you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.